Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, it's so great to be uh, talking with both of you. We're going to have a great conversation. You heard that right, guys. We have a special episode for you guys today. We are joined by Jasmine Bradshaw of uh, First Name Basis Podcast. Jasmine is a researcher, educator, and the host of that podcast, a show that gives parents tools to talk to their children about race, religion, and culture. Every episode, she's wrestling with hard questions to help people create change in their sphere of influence. Jasmine, welcome. Hi, I can't believe this. this is such a dream come true. Thanks for having me. Dream come true. Okay. Yay, you're welcome. We appreciate that compliment. We are just so grateful for the work that you are doing and uh, seeing all the influence that you got. Like you are doing quite a bit of good in our community and we are very grateful for it. We were just like, we got to have you on now because you are, you are doing some work out here. So thank you. Oh yeah. It's the best. Indeed. Uh, speaking of which, uh, I think one of the first questions uh, I would like to ask anyway, is just how you kind of came into uh, this, your ministry as uh, somebody who wanted to specifically focus on the conversation of teaching parents how to talk to their children about race. Like, how did this come about and how has your background informed that as well? Because I'm sure that may have had something to do with it, too. Oh, that is such a good question. Okay, so the story goes, my husband is white. I'm black biracial. So my mom's white, my dad's black. And we were always getting questions about what is it like to be an interracial couple in the church? And we would be kind of not paraded, but sometimes it felt like that. And, you know, and these firesides talking to people about it. Yeah. And we what were telling people. Interracial yeah. promenade. Very familiar. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we were telling people, you know, you go on these missions and you fall in love with the community and then you come back and you want to fight alongside them. You want to stand in solidarity with them. What would it look like to do that here with your neighbors and with the marginalized in our own communities? And we told them we started by calling it put a face on it. Right. It's so much harder to speak ill or have prejudice against people that you can put a face on. You have a face to a name. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're saying this, we're saying you need to get out of your comfort zone and talk to people, you know, expand your circle. And this one guy, he was so earnest. He raised his hand and he was like, what? I don't know how to do that. Everyone at church is white. Everyone at work is white. Everyone in my neighborhood is white. Where do I even start? And we gave him some ideas and we're like, Oh, cultural events and volunteering and blah, blah, blah. And then we both came home that night and we were like brushing our teeth. And I remember looking at Carter and feeling like, are you thinking about that guy? And he was like, yes, I'm thinking about him. I'm totally thinking about him. And I thought we need something tangible. We need something to give him and people like him where they say, where do I start? What does it look like? We are giving them the tools. We're giving them the, the blueprint and kind of the path this is where you start. This is what it sounds like. What is tone policing? What is gaslighting? What are all these terms that you hear thrown around, especially in anti-racist education? So that's where the podcast came from. And it, it stemmed when you ask about my background. So I grew up here in Arizona, not in Mesa, but in North Phoenix. And it was a very predominantly white community. And I remember feeling really alone, as most black children do in predominantly mm -hmm. white spaces. And this one experience sticks out in my mind so much. I was in college and I had come home for the weekend and I was watching, it was called This America with Lisa Ling. And <laughs> yeah. I know I'm like watching documentaries. 
it's fine. Nerd. Um, <laughs> you know, I know you do it too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm watching this documentary and it was about, it was called being black in America. And one of the episodes was about being biracial and they had this girl on her dad was white. Her mom was black and she was a spoken word poet. And she was talking about what it was like. She wrote a poem about feeling like you don't fit in with the black people because you're too light. You don't fit in with the white people because you're too dark. And I'm just sobbing like, and I go to my mom and I say, mom, she gets me. I've never had anyone say these things that, you know, make me feel understood. So fast forward a few years, I was in New York doing an internship and my degree is in nonprofit. So one of the things I was doing was working with an organization to give out some grants to nonprofits around the community. And I was going to like make sure that this nonprofit was a good fit. It's called Urban Word NYC. If you've ever heard Amanda Gorman, the poet who was in the inauguration yes ma'am she actually comes from urban word which i was oh. like oh my gosh i know them okay yeah so they're pretty legit so i was going out there to see if they would be a good fit for this grant and i had to go by myself nobody could come with me i was in queens it was in brooklyn so i ride the train for like an hour and it's on a saturday and i'm like it's okay you know i'm gonna give up my saturday because i really want to see these youth poets so i'm sitting there and they're all amazing of course spoken word just you cry all the time and this girl gets up and she starts talking and I'm like, where do I know her from? I recognize that girl's voice. It was the girl from the documentary. No. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Wow. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's her. And then of course I'm sobbing even harder and I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it because wow. she lives in Philadelphia, not even in New York. I knew that from the documentary, right? <laughs> I live in Arizona and I'm like, what is the, what are the chances I'm there alone? And I'm like, nobody's even here to witness this moment. So afterwards I go up to her and I'm like, I saw you on this documentary. You changed my life. I'm so grateful to know that there are people out there. And it was just a reminder to me that the Lord will take what you are feeling alone in and what you're feeling frustrated about and just weave it into this beautiful experience that is just for you. And I feel like all of those times where I felt like the only or, you know, alone or frustrated or all of these different things in my life were just preparing me to do first name basis because I was the only one in these predominantly white spaces, I had to learn how to talk to white people about race. And I know there are a lot of people that are frustrated, like we shouldn't have to have these conversations and it's not our responsibility. And that's all true. But I recognize the privilege that I have as a biracial person, as a light skinned woman, and as a person who, you know, who has wealth that I can lean on. So I'm like, okay, what can I do with this privilege? And this is first name basis is what I decided on. I love hearing stories like that where you just see how I think it was a uh, Reverend Dr. Fatima who once said something along the lines of God will often kill 50 birds with one stone and how he just weaves our lives in this incredible tapestry that seemed to lead to one moment or even multiple moments in a single moment, which is just crazy to me. It's, it's just wonderful to hear how the Lord has worked in your life to bring you to this point to where you are able to, you know, first of all, bring us such wonderful content, but also clearly see how he has worked on you, uh, worked on your own development as a person through all these experiences. And hopefully through the experience of creating first name basis, you've been able to not just touch other people's lives, but, you know, also be able to receive a greater witness of the Lord's place in your life, as well as 
your own identity as a child of God. That's what it sounds like I'm hearing. That's what I that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I have a question. I'm curious about your listeners. So are most of them parents? Are most of them, most of them just interested by st- how do you know much about like their demographics? How, uh, also in terms of racial makeup, is it mostly white people? Is it mostly people of color listening? Tell me a little bit about your listeners and what your impact has been. Yeah, my listenership is predominantly white and predominantly mothers or teachers. So I have a lot of um, women who are in the classroom with little ones. And then I have a lot of women who are raising little ones at home with their partners. And um, I that was very intentional on my part. I wanted to speak really to white people. But I always help people understand that even though my listenership is white, I make my podcast for black people because I want them to be able to take the podcast and give it to their white friend or their white neighbor who is like, I want to have conversations about race. I want to teach my kids, but I don't know what to do. This is what the podcast is. So it is very, it is, it's, I like to say I have a heart for the beginner because I want to start people with wherever they're at, meet them where they are. And I want to help us as black people kind of break down our fatigue. There's so much pressure and stress and emotional labor that goes into having conversations about race. So if you can take first name basis and send it off to somebody and feel like you have a little bit more freedom to explore your passions. I know James, or sorry, I know Brother Jones, you said <laughs> it's a couple fine. weeks ago, <laughs> um, you said a few weeks ago that the people who are in this work of anti-racism, we would love to be doing something else. And that's exactly how I feel. I always think about mm-hmm. what would I, what would I do if I wasn't an anti-racist educator? Right. So I want more black people to have that opportunity Absolutely. to not have to always be talking about race and thinking about it. So if yeah. you can take first name basis and just shoot it off, that is the goal. Very good. So uh, with regard to your listeners, can you tell me what the, uh, what the general response has been? I don't, exactly know how long you've been doing this for it seems like you've been doing it at least you know a year or two but like can you tell us about how the initial response to you know your content has been and how that has made you feel generally about the work that you're doing yeah so when i first started it was quite cricket like (laughs) i felt like i was talking to myself which was fine i thought you know if i if you build it they will come hopefully and so i started just very basic i mean my first three episodes are how to talk to young kids about race how to talk to older kids about race and then how to talk to your children about enslavement and so i started just you know on this path of what are the most common questions that i get about race and I was plugging away and then of course our country decided that they were ready to start having this conversation and that foundation was laid. So I've been doing it for almost a year and a half now and it's such a fantastic experience, but it's also been so hard because I was frustrated at the beginning when I'm talking about race into the void and then all of a sudden people decide they're ready. I was like, you guys have always been ready mm-hmm. and that's the frustration is that you're mm-hmm. you were ready there was nothing that needed to happen for you to be ready for these conversations you were just choosing not to and mm-hmm. so i'm always wrestling with that and how real i want to be with my community right i want people to come into the conversation i want them to feel 
I mean, conversations about race aren't always going to feel great, but I want them to feel empowered to keep going and mm -hmm. to try to make change. And if I get on, you know, my platforms and say, you guys, are, you, you are always, da, 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 I just don't think that they will respond well to that because my listenership, as I was talking about earlier, is mostly conservative women. Those are the spaces that I am in. I live in Mesa. I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. So the people in my sphere are conservative women. So mm -hmm. I felt like that was why it was my calling to talk to them specifically, even if it's really hard sometimes. Bless you for that. Just this last Thursday, I spoke at a uh, book club for this group of white women in California. And I did not change anything about myself or did not adjust my tone or anything of that sort, but I feel like I was able to strike a balance between speaking with love and also saying what I wanted to the point where people who even disagreed with me would have to take me seriously. But I feel that because I am a man and I do have this list of, you know, I hate to call them accomplishments, but they are like kind of items on a checklist that I'm able to do that, uh, that has allowed me to be able to do that. So I'm really appreciative of, you know, people like you who can stand in that space of a lack of privilege and speak to those people in a language that they can receive the conversation. Because in my opinion, the race conversation should be uncomfortable. In fact, like I've always said, the tingle means it's working, you know, just oh, wow. that is how that is how I want things to be. And with Elder Oaks or sorry, President Oaks's remarks back in October, back in October 27th, when he said Black Lives Matter affirmed it as an eternal truth and specifically named police brutality as a manifestation of white supremacy, he made racist white people mad. And I was like, that's what I want to see more of. That is what I want to experience. But again, that's an old white dude who can pretty much say whatever he wants. You as a young biracial black woman do not have that same luxury. So, you know. No, but I... <laughs> I always, my husband and I always talk about the importance of, I will always tell the truth. Mm -hmm. If I'm saying it in a nice voice, it'll still be the truth, yeah. right? And so some people definitely haven't responded well to that. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing I do is when people come at me with things, I'll just say, the first thing I say is, have you listened to the episode? Because almost 99% of the time they haven't listened yet. And I'm like, <laughs> go ahead and listen because you're concerned. I know white people. I know them so well. I know them better than they know themselves. So to. I mm -hmm. talk about their concerns in the episode. I mm -hmm. promise you, I talked about it. So if they have and they usually come back like two hours later and like, yeah, I listened. And I'm like, yeah, just now, right? On double speed. Um, <laughs> but then I make sure to tell them, okay, then what are your, you know, do you have any further questions? Because I'm pretty sure I covered it all. So if people get angry and frustrated, I just point them back to the resources over and over again. And almost everything I say in the podcast, I make sure to back up with research. Even if it's a personal experience, I'll go and find a study where other people have experienced the same thing because that's what I learned about the black experience is that it's a collective. Even though I live in Arizona and that poet lived in Philadelphia and you live in Boston, there are so many things that we experience as black people that are similar. And white people love to gaslight us and tell us, well, it wasn't actually about race or maybe that was just because somebody told me one time, people think you're the nanny because you don't actually look like your daughter. And I'm like, mm. well, do you hear yourself? First of all, second of all, she looks just like me, like carbon <laughs> copy of my face. If you look at her for five seconds, you know, she's mine. So it's just little things like that where, you know, I, I have a heart for the people in my community and I also want to push them and 
growth happens outside your comfort zone. And like you said, the tingle means it's working. Mm-hmm. So I have a question. I, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it. And it has to do with whether you've noticed uh, how the anti-racism conversation has changed over the decades. And my question is around racism is really resilient and it always comes back in different forms. And it seems to me at least that black people have been saying the same things since the 1960s, basically since the 1860s. A lot of it's the same things. So how, and it needs to be said, right? But how, is there anything... Yeah, how is the anti-racism conversation different or is it different than it was 10 years ago? Wow. Yes, it's it's different in the sense that there are things that are much more acceptable even in the last year, even since the murder of George Floyd. The word anti-racism being like a normal everyday word is a huge deal. The f- fact that people say the words white supremacy There was a long time when I wouldn't say that on the podcast because I thought that would shut people down. And now I say it all the time. So there is a lot of, I think we can be a lot more direct than we used to be, but you're right in that the frustration for black people is that we've been saying this for so long. All of the things that we're talking about, Beverly Daniel Tatum and Angela Davis and all of those amazing black women have been saying them. And so I think that that is where the fatigue comes in. But the biggest thing that I think we need to focus on right now is really being affirmative about our actions when it comes to fighting against the things that the systems that are entrenched. I always say everything comes back to slavery and housing segregation. And I feel like so many of our problems started there. Well, those things started hundreds of years ago. So we need problems that are going to be, or solutions that are going to be long-term and very intentional about fixing those wrongs. When you say, when people are anti-affirmative action, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. And they're saying, well, I'm not racist, so I'll I'll let the black people into my college or I'll let the um, people of color into my workplace. But the research shows that you won't. The research shows that when we take away those laws, when we shoot down affirmative action and unpack all of those things and get rid of them, that white people will still be benefiting from that, that systemic racism will come into play all the time. So as much as you want to think it's an individual oh, I'm a nice person, so I can't be racist. It's not about that. It's about understanding how you work in part of this larger system. So I think the the switch that we've been making from it being very individualized racism and just being about it being you as a mean person to the system as a whole is a fantastic transition. And I think that hopefully that is what's going to change the landscape of this conversation. Can we talk a little bit more about this in the context of uh, the church? Because I haven't had the opportunity to talk to a lot of black folks in the church who live in areas like Arizona and how they have seen their congregations respond to the events of, you know, last summer or the conversation surrounding anti-racism. What has been your experience in watching how uh, white members around you respond to this or how congregations respond to this stuff? Like, what is what is what does the landscape look like for you from the, I guess, inside looking out as far as the church's response to racism? 
<sighs> Deep Negro spiritual oh sigh. <laughs> well, I very much felt like a token at after George Floyd was murdered and Ahmaud Arbery, especially mm. between those two men and Breonna Taylor, I was so tokenized. I had calls from everyone and they mama mm -hmm. and i was just exhausted i'm mm -hmm. trying to you know run a life run a podcast i was pregnant at the time and i'm like you guys please i need a minute but they were everybody wanted to wanted me to tell them that they weren't racist and that was a really hard place for me to be because that's not going to solve the problem so i was trying to help them see how they were part of the problem. And then that made me the bad guy. And it caused a lot of rifts between people that I was really close with. And we're still dealing with that even a year later. But the church, the church was very silent. And it's so hard. I, there were a few times when I, my parents go to an AME church, African Methodist Episcopal, traditionally black church. And on the weeks when I needed more community, I just would go to their church. Obviously, it's on Zoom. All of it is on Zoom. But when you, when someone in your community is brutally murdered by the police and nobody even speaks his name over the pulpit, that's a pain that you can't describe. That's a, an invisibility, a pain of invisibility that is indescribable. And I knew that was going to happen. I mean, I asked my friends in my ward if they talked about George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, any of those people. And of course, why would they why would they talk about that? That's not relevant, is what people told me. That's not relevant to the gospel. And so, yeah, it's been so hard. But my bishop has been a really he has done things that have really surprised me. I really honestly didn't expect much of anything. But I told him we had a neighbor who had a Confederate flag right after the insurrection. Our neighbor put up a Confederate flag and you can tell it's brand new. It, it literally still has lines like crisp right from the package and it is waving. It's gigantic and it freaked us out because there was reports that white supremacist groups in our area were doing initiations that weekend and that they were looking for black families to be violent towards. And so we were very anxious. We thought about going to an Airbnb. We thought about going out of the state to figure out what do we do. And the very next day he puts up a Confederate flag and I was terrified. And we had our entire family sleeping in one room because I was like, if anything happens in the night, I need to be with my babies right next to me. And I was so mad at my ward members for driving by that flag every single day and not saying a word, not saying to him, that's not acceptable in our neighborhood. That is a symbol of hatred. That's a symbol of violence. Why am I the only one who's terrified sleeping with my kids all in one room when you guys are seeing that too? Does that not bother you? So I called my bishop. I told him all of those things and he said, I'll go talk to him. And I was shocked. I could not believe it. I thought, okay, good luck. Uh, first, I thought, we'll see if you actually do it. And then I thought, okay, good luck. And he did. And he went back a few times because the guy didn't answer the door. And when he finally did, he definitely was, you know, cursed out and yelled at and all of those things. And he called me saying, I failed. He said he wouldn't take it down. And I said to him, no, you didn't. The fact that you brought that up to him planted a seed and you have no idea what 
what's going to come of it. And that's what these conversations about race, why they're so important, even if they're explosive, even if they're tense, even if they're hard, you don't know what's going to come of it. And he took the flag down. He said he wouldn't, but he did. And I haven't seen it since. And that's the power of white privilege. That's the power of a white man going over there and saying, hey, I'm a local leader of a congregation and I'm here to tell you that that's not acceptable in our neighborhood. It worked. And I I could never do that. My husband could never do that. Can you imagine if my husband had gone over there and he started cursing me out? That would have ended probably violently, right? So I was like, this is the this is the power that you have as a white person and that's what you need to do you need to get your skin in the game put yourself on the line and make sure that you can stand in solidarity one more question i would like to ask uh simply because it's always good to get as many black opinions on this as possible i just want to know what you think uh, that the church's future or what the church's responsibility is in this fight for anti-racism might look like, or if you've thought about it at all. Some people haven't really thought about the specifics, but, you know, just given your particular position and the fact that I, I don't know, I don't want to give people the impression that everybody wants what I want. I uh, <laughs> kind of want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit more about what you would like to see just to provide another perspective on what anti-racism from a Latter-day Saint perspective might look like. Well, you know, I thought about it. Of course I thought <laughs> about it long and hard. Yeah, yeah. The first thing needs to be an apology, not just to us as black people, an apology to the congregation as a whole. There's a reason why our church looks the way it does. There's a reason why there are so few black people in our church. Mm -hmm. And that's because of our history of racism. Think about all of the potential members that have been marginalized and pushed out because of their actions and because of their lack of repentance. And so I think that that's the very first thing that needs to happen is we were racist. We made a mistake. This was not from God. And we apologize to everyone for the effect that it has had on our church as a whole and on our ability to share the gospel with so many other people. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. I mean, the frustrating part is that whenever I say that, people tell me that I'm being unfaithful and not following the prophet and all of those things. And I feel like, how dare you defend racism in the house of the Lord? I don't care where I'm standing. This is the solid, holy ground of the Lord. When you talk about anti-racism and fighting against racism, that is God's work. And I have to remind myself of that all the time because people will tell me that I am not being a faithful disciple if I'm talking about race. If I, They tell me I'm being divisive and all those different types of things. And I'm like, don't you see that Jesus wants us to feel the measure of our creation and that racism stops people from doing that? Every person, not just black people, every single person's potential is squashed because of racism. And so that's the hardest part for me is when people, when I'm saying, I am calling these men in leadership to repentance and they say, how dare you? So that's frustrating. Mm. Um, the second thing that I think needs to happen is sustained conversations about what it would look like to have integrated communities. What can we do in our church buildings to make them integrated spaces and spaces where Black people would actually want to come because when you walk in and you see white Jesus everywhere or when you walk in and you know that they're not going to talk about the 
brutality from the police or the things that are actually affecting your life, the things that are making you feel like you all need to sleep in the same room as a family, then why would you want to go to church at all? And so I feel like after my bishop was able to talk to that guy and make some progress, my dad said to me, you know what? That's a huge deal. And I would actually come to your church. He hadn't made a stance before about not coming. He would come if I was giving a talk or if my babies were being blessed, of course he would come. But he said, I would come because I would want to be there. And that was a huge deal. Obviously, I'm I'm not of the idea that every single person in the entire world needs to be a member. I think that it is important for those of us who are ready, and there are some people who aren't, and there are faiths that speak to other people's hearts, and all of those types of things. And I think that my parents have an amazing church community, and I want them to stay in there because that's where they feel they connect with the Lord the most. But the idea that my dad would feel more comfortable and would actually want to come with me to commune with God in the space where I feel the Lord strongly is so powerful to me. And just my bishop doing something to protect my family made him feel that way. And I think what would our spaces look like if you all, white people, were committed to this, we're committed to having the conversation, we're committed to taking a risk, we're committed to making yourself uncomfortable so that the family of the Lord could actually come together and worship. So we need an apology, we need sustained conversation and changes within our church buildings to make it more inclusive. And I think every single person who's in leadership needs training, real training about what does it look like to talk about race with the elders, with the Relief Society sisters, with the children. The children need these conversations too. And what does it look like to really, as the prophet said, root out racism within our church communities. So training, real anti-racist training about how to talk about it, about the systems that are at play within our wards and within our church in general and all of those different types of things. I, I dig it. I'm glad you talked about an apology as well. I would like an apology too, but I've like, I've said many times on the show that like, you know, I don't particularly want one simply because as soon as we get one, I know that nothing might come you know people are gonna be like mm. yo they apologize what more do you want i'm just like uh i want everything else that jasmine <laughs> just said you know what i'm saying like yeah. apologies yeah. have a tendency to ring hollow to me so i've always say like whenever people apologize to me i'm always just like don't be sorry be better like that's what i really mm. need that's the best apology to me is that change behavior but like it would not hurt if we if we got that apology i would love very much to to see yeah. one of those that would be very powerful one thing I do want to add is the idea of consequences too. I mean, Ooh, we, yes. have <laughs> we have consequences. We have consequences for everything mm -hmm. in the church. And mm -hmm. we have a very strict way that we live our lives. And there are things that you have to repent for. And I think racism is one of those things. And um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you <laughs> no, can I take this it. out if you want to. No. I just... So there are so many people that I know and love who supported President Trump, and that's it's so explicitly racist. We and, call him Forty Five here. Oh, sorry. There's so many people that I know and love who have supported Forty Five, and I mean our own family members who we said to them, "Do you understand what that wearing that hat or waving that flag is a sign of white supremacy?" And they said that it 
that it didn't bother them. Basically, they literally used their hands and said that racism was down here on the scale for them. And that's why he was important to them. And we helped them see, do you realize that you're putting our relationships and our family above, or you are putting him above our relationships and our family. And I just feel like there aren't any consequences besides us telling them, you know, we can't have relationships with you if you're going to act like this. What are the long-term consequences within our faith in terms of how they are interacted with that church? But also this is eternity y'all like, if you don't learn this here, you're going to have to learn this later. So it makes more sense for us to talk about it right now and get it figured out so that when we go into the eternities and we are a forever family, we're not still dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a question now. I hate to be like white and, and think I have a good idea, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I was wondering if it would be what would happen if like white accomplices all we all went to our bishops with you know one of these sacred interview things and said bishop i did something racist this week or i saw something racist and i didn't intervene i'm not sure if i'm worthy of a recommend i do i need to repent of this and and actually be serious about this because first of all the, the bishops are like oh, you're a fool why are you why are you, this isn't in the little checklist but it could change the course of their thinking on this. Like if we, if we as white allies think there should be consequences and I think there should be, we should be the first one to say, Hey, maybe it applies to me. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Uh, that sounds amazing to me. I mean, yeah, I think it first takes people understanding what racism looks like, because that's the hard part is that you have to be able to go to your bishops and say what happened, right? There are so many racist things that happen all the time around us that people don't even notice. So I think that's the first step is figuring out what does it look like in, in my community, in my home, in my school, in my church, and then going and saying, you know, as a collective, we have sinned. I just like so much that you have, named consequences as something that needs to happen. I think I said this last weekend, but like we really need to treat racism as more than just an unsavory personality trait and treat it as the sin that it is. And I feel like as soon as we as a church can actually do that on a broad scale or at the very least in our different congregations, I think big things are going to change because then at least we will take it seriously because you know mormons do not like to know that things that they do are sins and like or would disqualify them from a temple recommend and obviously derek i love your i your idea for you know right because a lot of us started a lot of us progressive white people think oh racism is it's other people that are racist right (laughs) and and the problem is 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 much more systemic than even we want to admit um and I, I have a question about something once you talked about spiritual bypassing and ah, yes. the the changing nature of the anti-racism conversation. Now a whole bunch of people started saying Black Lives Matter. And I'm wondering if if the phrase Black Lives Matter is the new thoughts and prayers, like something bad will happen, tragedy, and then someone posts Black Lives Matter and then not do anything different. See, that's the problem. So what do you think about about that 
Um, I think you're right. <laughs> I think the thing that I would add to that is the word unity. I'm so over the word unity and these companies that are talking about unity. Unity can't happen without justice. You've skipped like 15 steps. If you're, if you're going from police murder to unity, that, that it's not going to work. And so I feel like you're absolutely right. People are saying Black Lives Matter, posting the black square, saying unity, even coming out with unity products. I saw this unity necklace the other day and I'm like, what are you doing outside of selling a necklace? How is that going to really change our systems? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense to me. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It is thoughts and prayers. It's Black Lives Matter, thoughts and prayers and unity necklaces. <laughs> unity necklaces. I did not even know that was a thing, but yeah, you're totally right about that word unity. So I wanted to ask a little bit more just to bring it kind of back to uh, your particular ministry, Jasmine. Can you talk a little bit more uh, specifically because, you know, you've, you've alluded to this a little bit, but I do want to ask you more directly about uh, the goal you have for your particular podcast. You talked about who you want to reach. You talked about a little, well, you talked a lot about the kind of things you want to teach, but I want to uh, get a little bit more specific and direct kind of what are the, uh, I mean, if you've outlined them at all, what are the goals of your particular podcast and what are the goals of your ministry? Do you want to end things at podcasting? Do you want to create more media? Like what is this, what does the future of first name basis look like to you? That is the best question. So the number one thing I try to think of when I sit down and plan things for first name basis is what would a world look like where we were all able to fill the measure of our creation and that is where I want to go with it. I What I really want, the next step that I'm working on right now is a course for parents about how to teach their children about systemic racism. And I always start with parents teaching their children because when you're teaching your kids something, you are learning it too. You're all learning together and showing your kids that it's okay to not know something and to learn something new, even as an adult, I think is so important. And so when I think of where First Name Basis is going, I want it to be obviously in every home and everyone's ears. I also want it to be a community of people who are coming together in person eventually <laughs> after COVID and figuring out, okay, who are the activists in our community and what are they already doing and how can I plug myself into that? Because I think that's something that a lot of white people are doing right now is starting new things and making unity necklaces. And I'm like, there are so many people in your community who are already doing this work and you just need to link up with them and figure out how you can all run together. So I think that that is going to be our job as first name basis is first of all, helping give you the education to see what does it even look like? How do I spot it? What do I say when I come up against it? And then connecting you with who are the people in my space? How do I find those people who are already doing this work and join with them? Whether it be my time, redistributing my time so I can make sure that I'm doing that or redistributing my resources. I think that's the biggest thing too, is that why people don't understand that one of the biggest things this movement needs is money. We need your money. Reparations. So, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All of it. <laughs> So that's what you need to be doing. The government shouldn't have to tell you. You need to go and redistribute your resources and give those reparations to the people in your community who are doing this anti-racist work and make it one of your family values. People are like, I don't have I don't have this time. If it is a value of your family, you will have the time. My parents are both public servants 
And that was just an expectation that you're going to serve the community in this way. It wasn't, am I going to be civically engaged? It's how am I going to be civically engaged? So that's what I want to see my community going towards. Awesome. I heard, and I don't know if you're familiar with this model, Jasmine, but as you spoke, I heard the head, hands, heart model of change. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Okay. So like I heard just you progress from talking about making sure people have knowledge, making sure people have relationships and making sure people are doing something, making a consistent, concerted effort to the end of anti-racism. And I was like, oh my gosh, this model is everywhere. Or this model is in anti-racism as well. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this makes a lot of sense. I don't remember where I first heard the model, but like I heard somebody liken it to the anti-racist model not too long ago. And then just hearing you speak in that logical progression of, I mean, not necessarily a logical progression, but just in that particular order of, the head, which is making sure people know what to do, the heart, which is obviously creating the relationships, making sure people have people to connect to, and then finally making sure people act, making sure people commit to something long term in terms of, uh, you know, doing something in this anti-racist struggle. I just found it really interesting that everything you said fit right into that model and just how much sense that model makes in the uh, anti-racism struggle. Mm, yes, I love that. And I know exactly what you mean, because as I mentioned before, my background is in nonprofit work. So oh. that is 100% what we do, right? Of in course. the nonprofit sector. So yeah, making that connection. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, my bad. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the need for anti-racism training for all of our people, all of our church leaders locally, everywhere. That's not going to happen right away. What can we do in the meantime? Like, what if, what should local people do? What can we do to help, help get some of that in, in place? Mm. Well, if they're hearing our voices, they're doing it. Listening to things like Beyond the Block, listening to things like First Name Basis, figuring out who is already having this conversation and how can you be a part of it? because there are so many resources. And I think that that's kind of where people get stuck is that they feel drowned in the resources because there are so many. But I would say prioritize Black voices, amplify Black voices, and understand that, like you were saying earlier, Derek, we've been having this conversation for a long time. Mm -hmm. And if you're just coming to it, you might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but it will, you will be able to understand it if you give it the time and the attention that it deserves. So you need to put it on your calendar, right? And you need to figure out, it's amazing to me how many of us there are, especially in the Black LDS space. I didn't even know until I started this work. I thought, oh man, I I really want to do this. I might be the only one, right? And then as soon as I started, I'm like, you're doing it. We're all doing it. Of course, I should have known. But the church doesn't have that network for us. We've created it, thank goodness. So many of these members in the church have created the network. And I do think there is something to be said about us as Black members of the church having a sacred space where we can just be with each other. But there are so many opportunities where we have invited in uh, members of all colors to join us. And so come and join us when you see those opportunities. Yeah, you know, that that just brought up this thought that I wish that every white bishop in the church would go and respectfully visit a black church for three weeks. And they would come away knowing that there's 
there's a completely different way of just being in body together, a completely different way of engaging and being re relevant to the community, uh, different worship styles. There's just so much. I think that many of our white leaders are just in a very narrow thing of what church should be. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it wasn't always that way in this dispensation. I think this is a very artificial uh, thing that has happened quite recently. But but yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot that we could do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I would, I mean, I would love some more upbeat music if we're being serious. Let's, let's get that <laughs> happening in here. <laughs> absolutely. Derek says all the time, or at least it stuck with me uh, the last time we had this conversation just about how important it is that we create a space where not only all are welcome, but where the space is made for people of all kinds. Um, our transcriber, David Doyle, just sent us this cartoon image. We'll send it to you, but it's this picture of, uh, of people on the other side of a door that says short people allowed, but the short people are too short to reach the doorknob. And I'm just like, that's kind of what we are as a church sometimes. You know, we say all are welcome, but the space isn't necessarily made for people who worship or minister differently from us. I served my mission in South Africa and, um, you know, one of the things that was very apparent when the church was finally allowed to proselytize among uh, the black population there is how much assimilation was part of that missionary experience. And uh, it was sad because I'm just like, these people came from traditions that clearly are not anything like ours, but it would be wonderful to be able to adopt and to bring in people's cultures as part of the divine body of Christ, you know, and let people come as they are, worship as they would like to, so that this church isn't assimilated, but an integrated, diversified, vibrant church where people can worship and minister in ways that suit them, not just in ways that make us feel comfortable. Um, so I, I really like that idea. I love that. And I will say that I have never, ever seen a painting or photo of a black man in the temple. So that needs to change. Yep. I, I would like to see that as well. I would like to see that as well. I have another question. Um, for any of our listeners who may not be that familiar with your podcast and they're trying to decide if they want to listen to yours, what would you tell them? Mm. I would say that First Name Basis is a place for people who are on the journey of learning. I think that I've had so many parents come and say, I came to listen to figure out how to talk to my kids, but what I really realized is that I'm learning myself. And that is the biggest thing in our community is that we do not have a space where you get to learn about race. There is no class. I mean, hopefully there will be, but when I was growing up, there was no class in school about racial literacy and what it means to have these conversations. So we are all starting. We, it's okay to start where you are and to come into our space and understand that we're all on this journey together. And we've come a long way. So, you know, start at episode, season one, episode one, and make your way and just figure out what is it that you need? What questions do you have? And we probably have an episode that answers it. Mm -hmm. and like, how, oh, sorry, how, go ahead. How safe is your, your podcast for white people? I mean, it's <laughs> like, is it, like, are white people going to listen to it and feel awful and in, in a, in a, obviously mm. a little, but I'm, I'm sure that you as an educator are really um, scaffolding the process to make sure that you are supporting them all along the way. Yes. I, my 
biggest goal is that people leave ready to take action <clears throat> and feeling em- empowered. Even though conversations about race are really hard, I think that once, for me, once I have the understanding, I'm like, everything makes so much more sense. And that's what I want people to see. When people feel like, I know that systemic racism is out there, but I don't know how it affects my life. Those are the questions that we are answering. And I don't know what I can do, what I say to my kids when they ask, when they point to somebody in the grocery store and say, hey, mom, why is that guy all covered in black paint? We have that conversation. We tell you, this is what it looks like to walk through that with your children in the middle of the grocery store. And so it's just giving people really practical tools for what are the next steps. And I have a lot of white women come to me and say, I love listening to you because you're so kind. And I tell them, I do that on purpose. First of all, <laughs> first of all, I tell them I do that on purpose because I know that this is what you're going to listen to, but you need to understand that I save my real feelings about race for people that I feel safe around. So that should send a message to you that I don't speak to you in that way. Mm. Absolutely. So kind. Oh my gosh. That, uh, that, that made me cringe just hearing that. I'm like, do you, do you know what that means that I'm so kind or what? Like, I'm glad you named that. The fact that the, they feel comfortable with your particular tone or the way that you speak is indicative of a problem we have yet to address. Because so many people, so many times, will just take the privileged position of exiting a conversation just because it makes them feel uncomfortable and then make us feel like we're the bad guys simply because we did not temper our emotions or temper our words to their comfort, which in and of itself is obviously a form of racism. I I try to speak very gingerly. I don't know if that makes sense but that's kind of the the image in my mind is that i'm and i think the other thing that's safe about a podcast is that you can listen and you can listen again and you can be mad and you can talk to people about it and you can you know mm-hmm. talk crap about me behind my back and i'll never know and that's and that's great right i put it out it there great. and you listen and you can send me a mean dm but i'm not going to respond to you right so it's that it. it's I think that's powerful, though, that people get to do this on their own. I think that's what's safe about a podcast is that you're not in conversation with me. Because if you were, and there are people who have been, it goes very differently than me sitting alone in a room and choosing in between every sentence, how do I want to say this? Okay, how do I want to say this? And it's because I've had so much practice. But I want to give validation to all of your exhaustion and all of your frustration because I I get it, right? If people come from my podcast and they're listening to me talk about you, they're going to be like, who is this woman? She talks like that. (laughs) But this is what really what I want to say. And so that's what's hard is that I want my community to know that I'm grateful for them. I'm so happy that they're there. I'm so happy that they're learning, but they're not going to have the real me until they show me that, that they have done the work to earn that. And that's kind of a sad place to be too. Right, right. And this is how I am able to gauge my relationships with certain white folks. Like if I know I can go to you and complain about people of your race, then, you know, we're pretty much good. And, you know, Derek corrects me on this every now and again, because sometimes I'll be talking about white people like he isn't a white person. Yeah, and like, I got to like, <laughs> oh, I got to yeah, like address that. that. Like James <laughs> forgot that I was white a couple of times. Yeah, because like. Because like I just be talking to him about white people like he isn't a white person all the time and just. 
every now and again I forget because Derek is just he's done that work and I will say to his credit I will sing his praises all the day long because of this he is somebody who is always trying to improve himself and always trying to uh, make sure he is doing the right thing because as long as we've been in this fight we know that we are still capable of messing up still capable of making mistakes still very capable of uh, saying the wrong things but that kind of comes with the territory as long as you are in this fight you are going to make mistakes you are going mm -hmm. to say things that are wrong but you got to show up anyway and the second you are able to embrace that i think that's that is where my comfort uh is able to come from when it comes to talking to white people about my honest feelings is knowing that they can accept the fact that they will make mistakes and it is totally fine. I love that. One time I went skiing and the guy who was fitting my skis said, now when you fall, he didn't say if you fall, he said when you fall. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's exactly it. That's this conversation about race. When you fall, when you when step you in fall, it, when yes. you say something racist, yes. how are you going to react? And that to me shows me, are you ready? Are yes, you really in it? Or is this about you? Yes, ma'am. And that's where some of the best relationships that I have with white folks have come from has been realizing that people like white people realizing that I really do not judge them harshly when they make a misstep, especially if they repent of that misstep immediately, because most of the time, all the time, actually, I forget what exactly they did or like why what they said was problematic. What I remember is the fact that they made an effort to correct that mistake and they gave me audience. They gave me space. They listened. They received an education. They marked themselves as a safe person. I wanted to ask you, Jasmine, I don't know if I'll uh, include this in the episode, but it's just kind of been a fun-ish question for me to ask black folks. Like, if you didn't have to, if you didn't feel called to this particular ministry, if you didn't have to talk about race, how would you be spending your time? How would you be making an effort to thrive rather than simply survive? I love that question. I think about that too. Um, I would be, if I could do anything, I would be a summer camp director. I think summer camp is like the most fun and it's the place where you can grow away from your parents and be your own person and figure out what you look like in you know in nature and pushing your body and your mind and I think it's like so such a magical experience and if I could do anything I would be a summer camp director I would hang out with the kids and teach them what it looks like to be resilient and learn and explore so that's what I would do a summer camp director that's amazing Bless you for that. Like, I, I can see how that would suit you so well, but I'm also just like, that is such a difficult job. So bless you for wanting that. I want that for you. Like, hopefully one day when we don't have to do this nonsense, like, you can live all your summer camp director dreams. <laughs> Thank you. Jasmine, want to uh, kick the remaining time back over to you to just make sure we have all of our bases covered. I know you got some other projects that you're working on. Would you mind talking about those a little bit uh, for our, for the benefit of our listeners? Yeah, of course. So, of course, you can find me at the First Name Basis Podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm most active on Instagram at firstname.basis. And the biggest project that we have right now that has been so exciting, it's called Bite Size Black History. And so we have created a program that you can do with your kids and it is 12 bite-sized podcast episodes, eight minutes or less that you listen to with your kiddos. And each one highlights an amazing black American. And it's usually, it's all people that 
have traditionally been left out of our history books. So we focus on dancers and artists and inventors and doctors and black excellence in the way that we don't usually talk about it. So it's got these bite-sized podcast episodes and then there is a custom illustration that goes with each person that your kids can color while you're listening. And then we have reflection questions. So you can start having those meaningful conversations in your home. And it has been so fantastic to hear from the people who are using it. We've had over 400 families and classrooms experienced by Sides Black History, and everybody is saying that it has created so many opportunities to talk about things that they never would have been able to talk about with their kiddos. And I had a mom send me a, a picture the other day. She was like, my, my daughter was just drawing, and she used the brown marker to draw someone, and she's never done that before. And it was, it seems like a small thing, but it is such a huge thing for this little girl to be drawing brown people in her everyday life. That is pretty cool. Uh, can you drop that uh, social media handle one more time just for people that uh, want to find you guys on the Instagram? Yeah, it's just first name dot basis. First name dot basis. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. That will do us for today. Jasmine Bradshaw of First Name Basis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.